Welcome to the weekly podcast from Harvest Ridge Church in North Ridgeville, Ohio. Our heart's desire is that you would grow in your love and devotion to Jesus Christ and that these messages will strengthen your daily walk. For more information about our church, visit us on the web at www.harvestridge.net. Well, hey, good morning, sons and daughters of the living God. Is that who you are? Is that who you see yourself as? Did you opt in to that option? I hope so. It's good to be here. Um, my name's Jason, and I go to first service, so I've never met any of you, never seen a single one of you. And my wife, my lovely wife, Lori, and my daughter, Eden, uh, we usually sit in the four from the back in this section here. And, and uh, so it's my privilege to get to come today and share something from the Word of God. And um, during this time where pastor, uh, crow, pastors crows, <laughs> Uh, is that how that works? Uh, are on sabbatical. And, you know, I, I was telling the first service, it's a blessing to see people here when the pastors are on sabbatical, right? Um, they work hard, and they earned it, and they put in 30 years building this garden that we eat the fruit of, right? And it's so nice to know that when they're gone, people show up. The old saying, it's what the cat's away, the mice will play, right? And so it's good that you uh, not only honor your pastors, but honor God and his mission, the work he wants to do here, by coming and worshiping him, because that's who it's all about, right? Yes. Amen, amen. Now, I told a story in the first service, but I think I'm going to skip that. Now I'm going to tell it. When I was a kid, we used to worship at church with my grandparents. We all took up a row, my mom, dad, and brother and sister, my grandparents. And every once in a while, we'd show up, and uh, my grandparents wouldn't. So what's going on? And then the music would come up, and it'd be the youth pastor or some other pastor, and we'd, oh, okay. So my grandparents' attitude was, if the main guy isn't here, we're not going to show up. And I guess, you know, you get 70, you get cranky, and you can make those kind of choices. But, uh, but it always reminds me that whenever the pastors are not there, that's always when I make sure that nothing happens. Flat tires, the house burns down, I'm going to show up because I want to make sure that I, it's about something bigger and better than that, right? My God, my grandparents were so great. I probably should never even tell that story. But it was just always a telltale. And the backside of the story is we get home, we do what we call a heathen call. We call up grandma grandma. Hey, where were you today? Are you guys heathens? Why weren't you in church? So we used to tell them. We'd rouse them a little bit. And so, well, you know, we weren't feeling like it. No, you never feel good when the pastor's gone. All right, anyway. So it's good to be here. It's my privilege. Um, I mentioned that uh, this is a 30, 30 32-year-old church. And uh, as I mentioned the first service, I feel a little better now, but uh, if somebody was in their garage restoring a really high-value classic automobile, and they just said, I'm going to be out of town for a month, here's the keys, do with it what you will, um, if you had any sense of your own uh, humility, and if you cared for the people that threw you the keys, you'd be almost afraid to drive the car, right? And so I came up here this morning with a lot of fear and trepidation. I don't want to scratch the fenders or uh, dent any part of this wonder vehicle, wonderful vehicle that is Harvest Ridge Church. So I just get that out in, in the open and let you know I want to uh, honor uh, what, what uh, Pastor Kevin and, and his wife have done over these years. And I want to treat it well. And of course, I want to treat the Word of God well, and I want to be a, you know, a workman who needs not be ashamed, right? Rightly dividing the Word of truth. Um, what else do I need to tell you about myself? I'm a dachshund owner. I'm a proud owner of two miniature dachshunds. Ah, that's about it. Okay, so we're, we're, in this, uh, we're in this series called The Summer Films, or something like that. Films, films from the summer. I just saw the slide, and pff, okay. Anyway, the movie clip I chose this morning... Um, uh, was delivered to me in a burning bush. Now, 
1990, when I was in high school, there was a movie that came out called Joe Versus the Volcano, and it was a movie starring Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, before Meg Ryan looked like the Joker. And um, this, what, should I not say that? You can edit that out. Just trying to have a little fun this morning. Calm down. All right. The movie is called What Can You Do for Joe? And it was at the Dollar Theater. And I went to the Dollar Theater in 1990, put down my dollar and saw this movie. And there was a scene in it that, that I saw, thought was so fascinating, so inspirational. Um, and that's the scene I want to show you this morning. Nobody else liked the movie because I don't even know if anybody in this room's ever seen it. Probably not. But this scene to me really touched my heart, and it still to this day touches my heart. When, I, when, when they said, hey, would you like to fill in? Uh, would you like, we're, we have this theme called Summer Movie Clips, and I thought, oh, I know exactly the scene I want to talk about. Um, so I'll show that to you in a minute, but first I have to kind of set the table. So um, the movie's about a guy named Joe, played by Tom Hanks. And Joe has probably about the worst life you can, you can imagine. Um, his boss is horrible. He's beyond horrible. He's like the prototype from Michael Scott from The Office. Um, he is a hypochondriac, so he always thinks he's sick. He uh, is uh, kind of has, he lives alone and single, and he has a crush on the girl he works with at the office, but he either is unable or unwilling to muster up the courage to approach her and even talk to her. Um, what else is wrong with his life? It's just a mess. And in the, in the opening of the movie, he goes to the doctor and gets the worst news possible. He has terminal, uh, terminal disease called a brain cloud. And Joe, being hit with that news, decides, hey, I've got to change some things in my life, man. I'm living in timidity and cowardice, and nothing in my life has gone right. And so I'm just going to start, now that I have the end of the roads apparent, I'm just going to let go. I'm going to start making some leaps in my life. And unfortunately, there's no one to guide him in these leaps and the one voice he listens to actually turns out to be a malevolent actor uh, in his life. And so he starts taking these leaps and these adventures, and he finds himself shipwrecked and marooned in the middle of the ocean on a raft made of steamer trunks, um, dying of exposure and thirst and hunger. And also he's responsible for uh, a traveling companion who's unconscious and who he's giving thimblefuls of water to to keep alive. And there's no hope for Joe. And Joe in this scene is brought to the end of himself. And if you've read the Bible, you know that the end of yourself is a pretty good place actually to be. There's very little God can do with us till he brings us to the end of ourselves. It's said that for God to use a man greatly, he must hurt a man deeply. And that's, that's true. So that's where Joe is. And um, in this scene... He comes to the end of himself, so I think I've set the table pretty much. Let's watch uh, what Joe does.
Drink any water for yourself, Joe. All right. Hey, let's, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, Lord God, whose name we do know, we thank you for this day, for all the potential that it holds, for the people you've gathered here to sing your praise and to think about your word and to think about your mission in the world and to take their part and our place in that mission. We pray you would anoint this time. We pray that we leave here at the end of this time better than we came. And we pray that you would just use us and bless us, that we can be a blessing to others. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. All right. So Joe's prayer is, I think, a powerful scene. I think it's uh, this wonderful picture of worship. At the end of himself, worship. And then he crosses his arms and gets on his knees. Humility, right? And then he begins to utter this prayer to a God whose name he doesn't even know. Why? Because he's at the end of himself, and he doesn't have the data he needs, or the inputs he needs, or the formation he needs, or the worldview he needs. He doesn't have any of that. And so he just says, God, dear God, whose name I do not know. I forgot how big. And he, his voice trails off. He can't even finish the sentence. And despite all the problems in his life, and all his challenges, and the fact that he's facing almost certain death, he just says, Thank you for my life. Thank you for, he retreats into gratitude. And there's something about the, the realization that when we come to the end of ourselves and find someone bigger and something bigger, everything else pushes back and recedes into the background. There's a great verse from Ephesians 5.14. Pastor Jesse quoted it last week, and I seized on that when I, when I heard it because I was like, I love this verse. I'm glad he mentioned it. Ephesians 5.14, Paul says, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What a cool promise. What a cool promise. You can have an experience of the nearness and the, the immediacy and the presence of God, and you can feel the power and the life of Christ shone in your life. You ever walk in the woods on a trail, in the shady trail, and every once in a while there's a break in the leaves and you feel the sun on your neck? That's what I think of when I think of that verse. Awake, O sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you like a sunbeam through the leaves in the woods. Feels good. There's another great verse from Psalm 34, 18. It says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Joe's crushed. And another one of my favorites, 2 Chronicles 16.9, for the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You may have an objection there. You say, wait, 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 Joe. Joe is, this guy doesn't even know God's name. How can we say he's fully committed to him? Well, I would answer with two questions. The first is, how do you know you're fully committed to God? Yeah, what every, every nook and cranny and little area of your heart's completely filled with God? I don't think on my best day, I get to 80%, right? <laughs> and for how long? Some people in the first service, when I was in seminary, I used to go out on the porch with coffee and a journal, 
And uh, I would journal and drink coffee and think great thoughts and pray to my creator. And uh, it was just such an amazing time with God. We had this puppy one day. And I had been doing this for a couple of years as a force of habit. And uh, I walked in the door. I was barefoot on the porch because it was morning. It was cool out. And I just had my quiet time with God, with Jesus. And my foot hits a wet spot. And everything that happened on that porch went out the window in an instant, right? How full, how committed was my life, right? There's only one person, I guess I say that to say, there's only one person whose heart's ever been fully committed, right? Jesus, Jesus. And, and that's the truth, and that's what we lean on. And the second thing I'd say about that is, do you think God looks at us purely in the snapshot of, of this moment as we are in this moment? Whether it's me stepping in the pee and chasing down my dog, or in my best moment, writing in a journal, thinking about God and, and praying to him. I think it's something else. I think God, when he sees you, when he sees me, and just like I greeted you this morning, he sees us as sons and daughters of the living God. He has a filter he applies, just like you do for Instagram. He says, man, that's my kid. I love this kid. And I see this kid not as they are, <laughs> because that's a toboggan ride to hell, but I see them with the eyes of destiny, with the dyes of destiny, how, who they will be can, when they're fully conformed to the image of my son, Jesus Christ. Man, that's how I pray God sees me. That's how I pray God sees you. And that's why Paul could write in Romans 8, 29, for God knew his people in advance. He chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. I don't think we have Roman it's 829 happening without God putting that filter on and seeing us with those eyes of destiny. So that's important. So now we kind of set the table about Joe. Let's talk about something else. That, that kind of sets the table. Let's talk about who Joe represents in this movie. We use the word Joe to represent the ordinary average guy in just about every situation, right? Eat it, Joe's. It's very generic, right? Now, if your name's Joe, I'm not saying you're generic. I'm just saying in the culture, overall, we use that term, right? Joe Schmo, Joe Average, Joe Lunch Pail, Joe Lunch Bucket, Joe Cool, Joe Camel, if you're a smoker, I don't know. But we use that all across the board, all across the board in all the different ways. Why? Because the, Joe represents something. Joe represents the default spiritual condition of every human being. That's what Joe represents in this movie. So when you think about Joe, and I think we have another slide here where he's standing on the, staying on the raft, the default condition of every human being is to be lost at sea, disoriented, and drifting to whatever fate awaits him or her, you or me. That's our default human spiritual condition. I love what it says in 1 Colossians 1, 16 through 17. It's on the screen for in him... All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. In him all things hold together. So when we're lost at sea and disoriented, we need the orientation of that verse. What can we do? Here's the big question for the, here's the message in a, in a, in a sentence this morning. What can we do for the lost and disoriented Joes of the world? Because we're swimming in a sea of them, right? And if you've had the, the good blessing to, that Christ has revealed himself and shined on you and woken you up to him, 
then something happens, a spiritual transaction happens in your heart, not just to get you to heaven, but to bring somebody with you, right? We're called to this mission and this purpose, and, and God replaces our stony heart with a, start of, a heart of flesh, and, and he calls us to be active participants in the mission of God. And what is the mission of God? Well, there's a lot of different levels of it, but let me go right to the, let me cut right to the chase. Here, here's the bottom line. God's mission isn't really about us. It's about us, but it's not about us. It's really a God-centered mission that says that God deserves all the glory that is due him because he's God. God deserves the glory that he deserves represented from every tribe and nation and tongue around his throne on the last day. God deserves the glory that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the mission. The mission. And this mission and this impulse is what causes him to seek lost coins and lost sheep and prodigal sons. And Jesus said, I've come into the world to seek and save who? The lost. And what's being lost? It's being disoriented. And so you have this guy on this raft He's hungry, he's thirsty, he's dying of exposure, he's at the end of himself, and he's standing there with his arms out at the moon. Now, I don't believe in this movie, he's praying to the moon, because he said, God, whose name I did not, do not know. He didn't say, moon God, help me, right? He says, oh, God, whose name I do, do not know, I forgot how big. And what does that mean? Well, that means that the thing in front of him, as the scripture tells us, we understand the unseen by the things that are seen, he sees the moon, he sees this big thing in front of him representative of the God that's behind it. How else would we see God? We have to understand there's something bigger behind it all. And where do we get that viewpoint? The end of ourselves. Disorientation. You know what disorientation is, right? Disorientation is like when, um, when you play spin the, pin the tail on the donkey and they blindfold you and give you a sharp object and send you forth into the world, right? Spin you around, you try to figure out where that donkey is. Disorientation is when you begin to ask yourself, where am I, right? Who am I? What went wrong? What's, how do I fix it? Uh, this happened to me. <clears throat> my earliest, <clears throat> well, probably my earliest or disorientation was in the delivery room. You know, think about it. Life is a series of disorientation, orientation, disorientation, and reorientation, you know? Just when you master elementary school, they spring junior high on you. And just when you spring, master junior high, they spring high school on you. And then when you're king of high school, you go to college, and that's a whole different, or you don't, or you go to the military, it's even worse, right? I know I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt. So, um, disorientation. Now, in third grade, we had this, <laughs> this thing we like to do on, in the monkey bars. There's a lot of things we like to do in the monkey bars, fight each other and hang from them. Just hang from them and wait to drop and see how long we could last and that, um, rusty swing set palm, you know, from hanging on those old bars. And one day, uh, a group of us were deciding to jump from the, you'd climb up three rails, and then you could leap out a few rails and try to grab them. And so I thought I was getting pretty good at that. I, I, uh, I'm pretty small and light. I have been most of my life. And I thought, well, I'm going to climb up there, and I'm going to jump. I did the first, then the second. I'm going to get that third rail. I can, I can envision it in my mind. I'm going to make it. And I remember leaping off there with complete confidence. And the next moment that I remember, I was looking up at the teacher's face and all these students' faces, and I didn't know where I was, who I was, what had gone wrong, or what the answer was. I was completely disoriented. And then after a few seconds, you get your wits about you, right? 
And that's happened multiple times in my life. On, in ninth grade, I went to a biology class where uh, we got to view on a television set a uh, human autopsy. We had to get our parents to sign notes, and I thought, oh, a human autopsy, this has got to be cool, man, slicing and dicing and, and all this stuff. And <laughs> so I got my parents to sign the note, and I watched the video, and I started noticing uh, it wasn't what I thought I was going to see. It's pretty gross. And then I started noticing my classmates start to put their heads down. Boom. Boom. Head after head, just hitting the table. They said, if you start to feel sick, just don't watch. And I said, well, I'm not going to wimp out. I'm going to start this thing. I'm going to finish it. I'm going to see it through. And at some point, um, <clears throat> the video ended. <clears throat> and I think it was Mr. Knickman. He, uh, he moved the TV aside and turned on the lights, got out his big book, and began to move forward with some of the biology class. And I remember every time I shut my eyes, I started seeing the stuff that was going on in the, in the video, slicing and dicing and weighing things, and, and I couldn't make it stop. And so I got up, I started feeling sick, I went up and said, could I have a pass to the nurse? He goes, yes, and he writes one out. And again, I remember grabbing it, and then everything stopped until I was on the floor looking up at teachers and students and desks disheveled. I guess I'd fallen backwards into desks. <clears throat> Disorientation. Who am I? Where am I? What's gone wrong? What's, what's the remedy? So we live this way in life. And what can we do for the disoriented Joes of the world, whose every day, every waking moment is, who am I? Where am I? What's gone wrong? And what's the answer? You know, as Christians, we should want to help seek and save the lost. We should want to help disoriented people find their orientation. So what can we do for Joe? We can do two things. The first, the first, we can do many things. The first thing, though, is to introduce them to a biblical worldview. Now, this is tricky, and this was tricky last service, so bear with me. When you're talking to a group of people, the idea is you're supposed to take complex ideas, and you're supposed to make them real simple, so you can hand them off and people can receive them, whether you've had your coffee or not, or no matter what's going on in the back of your mind, or whether I'm putting you to sleep or not. Make, make it simple and give it away. But what I'm going to do is kind of the reverse of that. I'm going to take something kind of simple, this term. I'm going to unpack it a little. And this is always where we get more informational and less communication and inspirational. And uh, the trick is to, to keep you engaged. So a biblical worldview is a framework for interpreting and understanding the world around us. We all have one of these, whether it's systematic, whether someone helped us form it um, through instruction and guidance and put something together that's coherent, or... We're just swinging through life kind of freestyling it, trying to find our, uh, trying to put something together to understand what's going on around us. When you're disoriented, you need a worldview. You need some framework through which you can take in all the incoming information, process it, and pick a direction forward, right? And the reason I, I, I want to explore this topic is because those questions, where am I, who am I, what's gone wrong, what's the remedy, are really the four questions of worldview that, that, that frame biblical Christian worldview as well as every other worldview. So one of the best assignments I did in seminary was uh, we had this, uh, this project and they said, hey, look, you need to find somebody who doesn't share your worldview and interview them and write a paper and bring it back. Don't debate them. Don't try to convert them. Don't argue with them. The discipline of this project was to listen to them and try to understand where they're coming from. So listen, find somebody who'll agree to do this, listen to this person, and communicate their worldview so that you can kind of validate that you know where they're coming from. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> this makes a lot of sense. Paul tells us 
in Colossians 4, 5, that we should live wisely among outsiders. For not live wisely among the unbelievers. And we live in a sea of unbelievers. I was born in 1973. Statistics tell me that from the time I was born till about the time, oh, probably around 2000, maybe a little before that, the, the numbers moved from 70% of everyone in America going to church on Sunday mornings to, and 30% not going to completely inverted. So nowadays, uh, when I was a kid, 70% of people would show up in church on a Sunday morning, 30% would abstain. Nowadays, 30% show up on Sunday morning and 70% abstain. So if you're not in a biblical community, and these things are not being passed along through your religious community. And I <laughs> uh, better not open that can of worms. Uh, the, question, the question then becomes, who forms your worldview? The answer is you default into the predominant culture world, cultural worldview around you. What's our predominant cultural worldview uh, in America? It's, you could probably say, give or take, more or less, plus or minus, uh, humanism. Humanism is our default cultural worldview. It's the 70% of what people are interpreting and navigating the world around us in. It's in our institutions, and I'm not saying that, I'm not saying there's a conspiracy of that, I'm just saying that's what we have come to. This is the situation. Christians need to understand, especially people like me, right, we went to church every Sunday, we grew up in, in Christian world, right, that market share has changed. It used to be that I was living and abiding by the predominant, my family is living out the predominant worldview in my neighborhood, in our workplace, at our sports, at our schools, at our institutions. But now that's not true. We don't have the market share. We don't own the marketplace. And so our worldview is something that we actually have to take pains to communicate to other people because it's misunderstood, it's misrepresented, there's a vacuum of it, and the thing that's in his place actually locks people out of the whole concept even of there being a God. <clears throat> now this became abundantly clear to me when I, did the <laughs> when I did the research project. So the questions are, of worldview are these, where are we? If we go to the next slide, I think it's the next one. Oh, maybe it's one more past this. I'm gonna make sure you can track so we unpack the questions a little more. Where am I? Who am I? And then um, the questions that follow them. It's one other, it's a different slide from that one. I just want to make sure people can follow it. Yeah, reality is not a human construct. We go one past that. True reality is defined by Christ, our creator, sustainer, and Lord. That's what we believe as Christians. That's biblical worldview. Here is where I want to go. The best way to understand Biblical worldview is to take it and put it next to um, a different type of worldview. And so I picked humanism because that's our predominant cultural force. So these questions translate into things. Where are we? What's the true nature of the reality in which we find ourselves? Who are we? What's the true nature and task of human beings? Three, what's wrong or how do we account for evil and brokenness in this world? And then lastly, what's the remedy or what's the path we take to find our way from brokenness into wholeness. Every worldview out there is asking these questions and are coming to different conclusions. So I thought maybe the best way to communicate this is to share the answers I got 
from Mr. Fred Edwards. Now, he was a very uh, gracious man. He has uh, been on a lot of TV shows representing humanism. Uh, he works at a think tank, or he did, in Washington, D.C. when I interviewed him. And he said, I'd be happy to provide these answers for you. Uh, we scheduled a phone call, and he says, all I ask you to do is give me a copy of the paper you write at the end for my files. So I'd be happy to do that. So I asked Mr. Edwards these questions, and, and these are the things he told me. And then we'll, we'll get back into the disorientation, the reorientation thing. So where are we, Mr. Edwards, from a humanistic point of view? Or what's the true nature of the reality in which we find ourselves? Well, he said, Jason, all that exists is part and product of nature. Humans are part of a natural process of evolution. The universe has no personal interest in the human race. We're the product of a mixture of random occurrences, probability, and chance. Life is a temporary situation that we happen to enjoy along a continuum of infinite cosmic change. That's where we're at. Okay, Mr. Edwards, thank you. Uh, from your point of view, who are we? What's a fundamental nature and task of human beings? And here's what he told me. Because the universe is impersonal and impartial, the human being becomes the conscience of the universe. We care because it's our nature to care. As intelligent social animals, we choose to live in society in an effort to repeal the law of the jungle, a law that says might makes right. Moral rules are simple necessities for holding society together and making civilization possible among evolved, intelligent social primates. That's, that's how he sees the world. That's how he understands our nature and task. I would paraphrase that, not to... Not to uh, not taking a dig at him, but my understanding was be a good monkey so other monkeys see your good monkey example and become better monkeys themselves, right? That's the idea. What's gone wrong with the world, Mr. Edwards? What's the fundamental problem of good and evil? And he told me, well, good and evil doesn't exist in our worldview. The idea of good and evil is what is productive for society to evolve and what versus what's counterproductive to society. So if it helps society evolve as a whole, it's good. If it fails to help society move forward and progress, it's bad. Evil is not a malicious spirit or force in the universe, but rather the reality of disenfranchised people. Good itself is constantly evolving and changing as humanity moves through time. So the idea is this. What was good a thousand years ago isn't what's good today. Good's changing. It's not an objective standard. And what's good today may not be good two weeks from now or two years from now or a thousand years. We'll figure that out on our way. So there's a continuing standard of right and wrong, good and evil. Well, what's the remedy, sir? What's the remedy from, from this broken condition to wholeness? Oh, I'm glad you asked, Jason. Establishing a society that's ultimately just and fair. That's the only way to end this, through trial and error. Human compassion and human reason are the twin necessities for remedying the wrongs of the world. And then he closed by saying, reason is the tool for reaching the dreams compassion came up with. And so what Mr. Edwards in his worldview is saying is, there's nobody up there, there's nobody out there, we're on our own. You and I, we are the conscience of the entire universe. It's us and that's it. And the whole reason that what we have a thing we call morality is just to hold society together so that might doesn't make right and the mighty people brutalize all the non-mighty people. Well, how do we get out of this mess? Well, we're just going to evolve our way out with reason and, and compassion and we'll get to the promised land. That's the strategy. That's what he sees when he looks at the world. Now, you can imagine if somebody's oriented toward those things and you say, hey, have you considered the son of God? The answer would be, there is no God. How can God have a son? So when we're working with trying to orient 
people that we would feel are disoriented from a Christian worldview, what is orientation? It's turning somebody, right, towards something. Your compass orients toward north, right? When we're trying to share the gospel, we're trying to lead someone to Christ, help someone understand God, how can we introduce them to the Son of God if they don't believe there's a God in the first place? So when you're talking to people and witnessing to people and working with people in the world and trying to share your faith and turn them to God, you have to overcome the stronghold that is whatever their worldview is if it's not Christianity. You also have to understand your own worldview so that you can meet them. If you're going to build a bridge across the river, you don't just show up with a bunch of supplies and start welding stuff together, right? You survey each shoreline. You find out what the soil's like. You find out the best place on each side, and you make sure they're lined up. And then you hire engineers, and then you hire crews, and then you put the things together that builds the bridge across the river. That's what it takes to build a bridge. That's what it takes to orient people like Joe, lost, disoriented people, at drift at sea on a raft with no orientation. And we want to help them because God has helped us, right? We've awakened like sleepers and risen from the dead, and Christ has shined on us. We want other people to feel that warmth. We want other people to experience that life. We want other people to be able to see that Christ and know that Christ and call on that name that to right now, to this point, is unknown to them. So how can we help Joe? We can help orient them to a Christian worldview. So what's a Christian worldview? I'll just do this real quickly, real shortly. Christian worldview, what's gone, where are we? We are in a universe that God created, sustained, and controls. He superintends the flow of history, and he orders the events of this world towards his plans and purposes. Well, who are we? Well, we are beings created in his image to reflect his glory and to carry out his stewardship of everything in this world, to represent him as junior partners in his plans and purposes to accomplish the things he's called us to accomplish. Well, what's gone wrong? Well, we've exchanged God rule for self-rule. There's a part of our human condition that said, I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And because that's a part of us and because that's at work in us, gnawing away, it negatively impacts and affects every part of reality. Our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, our stewardship of creation, our our Everything we can, death, disease, you name it, that's part of the problem. What's the answer? What's the pathway from brokenness into whole, wholeness? The, path, the answer is the messianic redemption of the entire world through the death and life and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the answer. That's Christian worldview. Now, a Christian worldview, or any worldview, isn't a worldview unless you hold it unless it's the thing that governs your life. So we may say we assent to these things, but if we're actually not living that way, we actually don't assent to these things. And that's the, that's the other part of the problem, right? It's not just that we get to know these things about Christ or know these things about the world. We have to live them out. I asked Mr. Edwards, are you, the last question, sir, is are you living according to your worldview? He says, yep, we have two kids. We're raising them both as atheist humanists. We don't believe any of the garbage you believe in. <laughs> and... Uh, and this is the way towards, from brokenness into wholeness. We're going to use and teach our kids the twin tools of compassion and reason so they can be adults and help society progress. All right. So that's his orientation. Now, as a Christian, as a believer, I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'm going to say that his orientation is a disorientation. <laughs> because reality, as it really is, as it's truly defined, is defined by Christ 
the Christ that created the world, that holds the world together, that superintends history, that's put us here and called us to follow him and to teach others about him and disciple the world. Christian worldview is this. Psalm 119, 105. Your word, O Lord, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's what Christian worldview is. Believing and trusting that the living word of God connects with the written word of God, which is his revelation, and through each of us in, in, inhabits our very beings at a, at a core level through the power of the Holy Spirit to change us and to move us toward God and to call us to himself. That's what Christian worldview is found on. All right. Why is it helpful to be able to, and you talked about all this stuff now, I'm going to step back from this. Super, that, I just broke all the rules for communicating to a crowd, so wake up now, okay? That part's over. But the reality is this. There's some reasons that Christian worldview is very important. The first is because some worldviews provide a link that can exist in making the gospel relevant to the non-religious. If somebody's orientation is an orientation that's not a Christian worldview, uh, they've turned toward a brick wall, and there's nowhere you can lead them. No way you can lead them to the Son of God if the place, the position they're facing is just a walled-off compartment. They can't see God. They're never going to see the Son of God. So we have to understand that's where people are. To counter the challenge of biblical and religious illiteracy, I uh, know a guy whose seminary project was, why is there... Um, such high levels of biblical illiteracy among evangelicals. <laughs> and the funny thing about his research is, he found in North America, Muslim kids were outscoring American Christian kids in New and Old Testament knowledge. Yeah, it's pretty scary. <laughs> you can go find his, find his work online or wherever. He's, I'm sure he's published it by now. To highlight the differences between worldviews and meaningful interaction, I think this is the most important piece. When I meet somebody with a different worldview, I want to validate that I understand where you're coming from. I get, I get it. If I didn't know or if I didn't have the experiences I had, I'd probably be right where you are. I want to know where someone is because I want to know where to build that bridge to on the banks of the river. You know, the, the gospel travels best across the bridge of friendship. People don't want to be crammed down on People don't want to be seen as a project. They want you to have a legit interest in them. And a legit interest isn't just shoving your data points down their throat. A legitimate interest is being willing to do that at some point, because friends shove things down each other's throats, right? But first, to build that friendship and to listen, to validate where they are, and to find out, hey, this is where we overlap. This is the, con the human connection we have. Can I share with you a little more, right? And so that's the other part, too. All right, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on. Uh, Step three. So the, the first thing we can do, what can we do for Joe? We can help him orient his worldview. We can turn him to where he has a possibility of seeing God. But the next thing we want to do is help him move to the next step. Move to the next step. Now, this is, uh, I'm going I'm to show you something that's kind of, uh, it's a model for how to share your faith with people. It's not the model, it's a model. And I found it very helpful in my own life. And this is, this is what the model says. It's called Step Up to Life. You can find it at stepuptolife.com. It, um, it was created by uh, one of my mentors and, and somebody who uh, I respect deeply in my life. And uh, it's gone around the world in a lot of different cultures and languages. And it's a very active uh, uh, evangelistic tool today. But it really comes down to this. Joe, who runs your life? <laughs> 
Joe, Mr. Lost on a Raft at Sea with, with a grim fate ahead of you, who runs your life? This is the question that everything hinges on. Who runs your life? Joe, your attitude, the attitude of your heart determines your nearness to God or your farther distance and disconnection from God. It all hinges on the attitude of your heart that you harbor. Jesus taught this in Mark 12, 34, when he said to the man seeking truth, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Why? Because that man had come to him and was asking the questions, the right questions. There are five steps we can stand on that determine how near or far we are from God. Every one of us has been on these steps at one time or another. Maybe uh, you'll find yourself on this chart as we go through it. But it's just a quick way to say, hey, you know, we think of evangelism. We think, I'm going to share my faith with somebody. And it's going to be this impossible task. It's like being in one end zone and throwing that football and a Hail Mary pass and somebody in the complete other end zone is going to catch that sucker and I'm going to get the six points, right? But really, we can, have, we can consider ourselves at work and having done and participate in the mission of evangelism just by helping someone identify what step they're on and opening the door to the next step. You don't have to do it all. You don't have to do the perfect presentation at the perfect time, in the perfect way, at the perfect tone, just to write the right season in someone's life to have committed an act of evangelism. So we're going to talk about that. So the first step, Joe, everyone's on one of these five steps. Help me find you where you are, right? And so you say, Joe, unconcern is the first step. Joe, you may know a lot about God. You may know very little about God. The important thing is you don't care. <laughs> You've decided at some point along the way, you've heard all this stuff, this religious garbage, you don't want any part of it, that's fine. Or as one of my cousins told my grandmother, oh, I don't want to hear all that stuff, I'm young. I'll worry about that later on in life. Well, there's two problems with that. The first is that none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. Is, you know, young people don't understand that. I was immortal once when I was young. But the second problem with that is, and this is, a, this is something that one of my mentors told me when I was early on in ministry, and I, I, I've yet to see it not materialize a reality, is that you die like you live. People die like they live. So if you've spent your entire life resisting the pull of the Holy Spirit, re re resisting the conviction he gives us with regard to, you know, uh, everything in our lives. There's very little chance that you're ever going to believe I'm at my last hour of my last day and now is when I'm going to turn the corner. You train yourself to resist God. You train yourself to obey God. Just like when you go to the gym and you put up 10 pounds. Well, I did 10 pounds and I'm going towards 500, right? You do, you do your increments, you step it up by 10%. Now 10, 10 pounds is stupid, I get it. None of us are that weak. Well, no offense to anybody who can't put up 10 pounds. All right, but you go to the gym and you make your decisions and you train yourself toward the big number, right? People die like they live. You train yourself to ignore God every single Sunday. Training yourself to ignore God every time he taps on the door of your heart and asks you to do something and the tapping gets fainter, 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 fainter. You train yourself away from that. So we want to be sensitive to God. So anyway, here's the, here's the message. I understand you're unconcerned, Joe. But I just want to tell you this, and here's my, here's my good news for Joe unconcerned. Joe unconcerned, just because you don't care about God does not mean God doesn't care about you. Evangelism done for him. <laughs> That's where he's at. What does Joe need to hear? He's an unconcerned Joe. 
What does Romans 5, 8 tell us? God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ what? While we were yet what? Oh, okay. Uninterested, unconcerned. I don't got time for this. I'm young. As a Pink Floyd said that, right? Life is, you were young and life is long. There are plans to kill today. It's time to kill today, right? I got all kinds of time. Well, that's all right. I understand. You are where you are. I can't change that. I can't kidnap you with a gunpoint and take you to Christ. Because if I could, locked and loaded, buddy. But you're unconcerned, and I get it. And so, just because you're unconcerned doesn't mean God isn't concerned about you. And so, Joe, when that changes, when, you're, when you feel like you might be coming off this step, remember my name. Remember I reached out. There you go. That's evangelism to the unconcerned. Joe, God cares about you. Now let's move on. Step two. Step two is concern. What's concern? Well, eventually, life kind of kicks people in the pants, you find out, the older you get. You get news that's not good, crisis happens, you lose a marriage or a loved one or a problem develops that you can't handle, and you come to the end of yourself, and guess what you become? Concerned. <laughs> Concerned. Concern is when you begin to have an awareness of your deep spiritual needs, and you begin to look for some answers to those needs. Now, every one of you probably knows someone on the unconcerned step, right? Do you know someone on the concerned step? Can you think of somebody who's on kind of a journey? I had a relative, uh, an in-law, who uh, uh, we were, we, my wife, Lori, and I weren't too, too much younger than these folks, and, and uh, they're great people, they're nice people, but they were just, they wanted to go out and do all the kinds of things they wanted to do. They didn't have time for church or God or religion until the Sunday morning when her cat died. I get a call, I'm getting ready for church, and <laughs> can you get time to talk? Sure, he didn't want to talk to me about God any other time, but what is it, what is it? My, my cat's dead. Oh my gosh, your cat's dead, I'm sorry. I'm personally, I'm a dog guy, but um, <laughs> so the news is bad. No, I'm just kidding, just joking. But, but she wanted to know if her cat had gone to heaven. All the spiritual conversations we'd tried to have, all the invites to church events, none of it mattered until the cat died. And then the focus was on the cat. And that's fine, because God will use what God's got to use. He'll, he'll touch you at that place of weakness, right? He'll put that Vulcan grip right where you need it, send you down, and open you up and cause concern. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And uh, there's nothing that breaks down the rockiness and stoniness of a heart like a crisis. Don't make God put you in a crisis as he pursues you. Because he loves his kids. He sees you with eyes of destiny. He searches out lost coins, lost sheep, lost sons. They come to their senses in the pig, pig pen. But it doesn't have to get to that, right? And so concern is the second step. Concern's a great place. If there's enough pressure and concern, and you say, Joe, I'm glad you've, you've reached back out. I'm glad that you're concerned. Let's talk about the next step. You know what the next step is? It's conviction. Because people don't change until the pain of staying the same hurts more than the pain of changing. And so conviction is a very necessary tension to push us into a place where we can begin to grapple with something uh, that we haven't grappled with before and open ourselves up to it, right? So conviction. James 2.10 says if you keep the whole law and are guilty in one point, it's like breaking the whole thing. There's this great illustration where you blow up a balloon, you write all the Ten Commandments on it, and you pick one, you prick it with a balloon, with a pin, and guess what happens to the balloon? The whole thing's destroyed, right? Conviction is a deep, 
sense of guilt and concern caused by the Holy Spirit showing us our emptiness and our sinfulness and pushing us to approach the God whose redemption and love and forgiveness we need. Conviction is a vital piece of this step. So when you talk to someone who's convicted, you say, well, it sounds like you, you feel really guilty about the stuff you've done. And I know you're concerned. and used to be unconcerned, and, and these things have come to a head. How much, does this, how much does this sin you feel guilty about bother you? A little? A lot? Enough to do something about? And this is a sticky one. I told this uh, in the first service, too. Conviction's a sticky, usually a sticky place, because if you don't hurt enough, you're just going to keep hanging on at the death grip to that sin you love. We had a friend, my wife and I had a friend uh, who, uh, they, were, they got married the same age, and they got married about the time we got married. We did everything together. Cookouts, everything. Went to church together, um, helped each other move. Uh, just all of those little seasons of life, the first couple years you're married with these really tight friends. And then at some point, um, the husband was unfaithful to his wife with a woman at work, and she was trying to do the good Christian thing and hold the marriage together, kind of like playing tennis all by yourself, you know, serving the ball and running the other side of the net and serving. I mean, she was doing it all herself, trying to, trying to be good and loving and, and keep the thing together until he got his wits about him. And uh, it just wasn't working out. One day I took him, we went golfing, we, we played nine holes, and I hadn't seen him for a while. And it was the elephant in the room. We played a bunch of holes before we even talked about anything. And finally he just goes, I know I haven't seen me, you haven't seen me in a while. I know you're all probably mad at me for what I've done and what I'm doing. And I said, I just can't put my mind around it, man. Why are you doing this? And he goes, hey, he goes, I, I love my wife. I don't want to destroy my marriage, but I don't want to stop. I, I want to have this other relationship. And that's just where I am. He was very, he was very unapologetic about it. And it was mind-blowing to me. But it just showed me that you can understand that you sin, and you can feel conviction. How much do you feel? A little? A lot? Enough to do something about it? And until it hits the point where you want to do something about it, until God presses the screw to the point where the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and you're ready to pop, nothing will happen. But because we are partners with God and he is building his kingdom in this world, we do believe these things happen. And, and there are people who come through this and their conviction drives them to repent. So I'm going to tell you one more story and we're going to be almost done. So we can get our musicians ready. One day I was called to, at work to a guy who had, uh, was in a really bad place. I said, hey, Jason, we need you to get over here. This guy, uh, he's just hysterical. We got him out of jail this morning and he's having a really terrible time. And uh, I said, okay, I'll go over and see him. And I went over and saw him and listened to his story. And what had turned out to happen was he had a drug problem, he had a drinking problem. And his marriage was on the rocks and he was about to lose his job. And um, one night he, was, he got up the night before and he, had, uh, he went to the bathroom. And while he was going to the bathroom, he heard his wife's phone blowing up, text, 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 text. He's like, my goodness. And she was sleeping. So he picks up the phone to, to quiet the text and he sees the messages from a guy on her softball team that she'd been having an affair with. And he read those messages and he got so irate, he put down the phone and he said, Jason, I beat my wife awake. I beat her awake. And the cops came and they dragged me to jail. It was a terrible domestic incident. And uh, when I was in jail, I had to be a urinalysis uh, test and they're gonna, it's gonna come back, I'm gonna pop positive. So I've lost, in, in the course of these few days, I'm a drug addict who's lost my wife. I'm losing my job, I have nothing. No religious background, right? But he felt conviction 
the screws were put to him. He said, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? Well, he asked for me to come over. People asked me to come over because I'm, I'm the religious guy. I'm the pastor. So, so I tell you what, no matter what you've done, God cares about you. You've not cared about him. You're not, and he goes, I've not known about him. I've not been part of church. Uh, okay, well, I, I start to talk to him. I say, hey, God's a God of second chances. If there's things broken and crushed and destroyed in your life and you keep a death grip on him, he won't, he can't put anything else in your hands until you release them to him, right? The scripture says he gives us beauty for ashes and the oil of joy for mourning. And I can't tell you you're going to get your life back, your job back, your wife back. Probably that ship might have sailed. But I can tell you this, if you commit your life to Christ, he'll give you a second chance. He'll walk with you through these fires you've set as your life burns down. <laughs> and when those embers are done smoldering and the fire is put out, he will give you beauty for ashes. But you just have to trust him because there's not much else I can tell you. And so he, removed, he moved from conviction to the next step, which is repentance. He says, let's pray. I said, okay, I'm happy to pray with you. I thought, I'm, I said, why don't you pray from your heart? And then I'll, like, I'll do the cleanup, you know, the theologically correct prayer. And this guy led himself to Jesus Christ. I'm not even joking. He, he, I was going to pray with him by like putting his hand on his shoulder or just kind of, and he jumps down, turns around and gets on his knees at this couch and buries his face in the cushion. And I'm just kind of still shocked that he has this reaction as a, as a non-church guy. And he looks up at me and says, come on. And so I get on my knees next to him and he just says, dear Lord, forgive me. I've ignored you. I've not known about you. I've not cared to pursue you, but I am in trouble. I'm in trouble and I need your help. I need a second chance. I need you to forgive me. I believe in you. I believe in your son. Help me through this moment. Help me through this crisis. I give my full life to you. Help me make things right or at least make things better. Something like that. I didn't write it down. I was praying with him. But I was shocked because I thought I'd have to lead him through the ABCs. Admit, believe, confess. He did it. And he was ready. Why? Because you're never alone with people when you're walking through the steps. It's you and the Holy Spirit. You're just a junior partner in this whole thing, right? So that led him to his final step, which is this last one, saving faith. Saving faith in Jesus Christ. We can repent all day long. We do it every January with, with uh, uh, commitments we don't keep for the next year, right? But when we say, Lord, I'm turning, I'm doing a spiritual U-turn from the way I was living, and I'm going to begin to follow you. I'm going to follow your lead. And I ask you, Lord Jesus, come into my life. I commit myself to you. Lead me in the, in the ways of life everlasting. That's when saving faith happens. And that's when we meet God at the top of that stairway. That's what Joe needs, right? That's what Joe needs. He's disoriented. He needs to be oriented. And you know what else he needs? He needs someone to guide him to the next step. You can help people get to the next step. You don't even have to use the word evangelism. I like Ferris Bueller. He says, I don't believe in isms. Isms, in my opinion, are generally bad things. Well, evangelism is good, but what is evangelism? It's really, what is it? It's helping someone get closer to Christ. It's not the ism that's important. It's the person, right? And so you want to be a part of evangelism. You want to be a part of telling people about Christ. And God wants you to do it. Uh, God wants to help you do it and do it successfully even more than you can imagine. Because he's the one searching out lost kids and lost sheep and lost coins. So what can you do for Joe? I just want you to bow your heads and close your eyes for one second. Where are you at? Where are you at right now?
What's the snapshot of your life on July 30th? Are you unconcerned? My message for you, the good news for you, is even though you don't care and maybe someone drug you here and you're just waiting to go get lunch afterwards, that doesn't mean God isn't concerned about you. So let this moment be a bookmark in your life that you revisit. There's a room full of people here, a church full of people. Maybe the person you're sitting next to that would love to revisit this with you when you hit concerned. And if you're here today and you're concerned, yeah, I have some questions. I, I know I need something, but I've not known what it is. Well, the good news for you is that you can move up the steps. You can move closer to God. Concern, that concern was put there by him, pulling you to himself. Maybe you're convicted today. Maybe you're like, you know what? There is some shady stuff, some sketchy stuff going on in my life. I know it's not right, but man, I love it so much. I'm here to tell you, you know what? Unless you let go of that, the good news is you can let go of that. And the God of the universe will trade you up. He'll give you beauty for ashes and the oil of joy for mourning. And that thing that you're hanging on to will put you in mourning. It's killing you. The things you're holding on to are killing your spirit. And the good news is we can go from there to repentance. We can make a decision. You know what? I'm going to start walking a new direction. I'm going to make a spiritual U-turn for my life. And when we do that, we say, but it's going to be hard. Well, that's okay. That's what saving faith in Jesus Christ for is for. If we believe with our hearts and confess with our mouths that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, we will be saved. For with our heart we believe and with our mouths our confession becomes salvation to our souls. There's a spiritual transaction that happens at the top of those steps. And my prayer today is that every person, each and every person in this room could put their finger on a moment in time where they didn't just get the data they need, but they had the spiritual transaction that changed them and took them from death to life. Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. That's not a promise from me. That's a promise from the living God, the creator and ruler of heaven and earth. And lastly, for everyone else, I just pray. Take a moment and, and ask God, put someone on my heart for one of these steps, whether it's unconcerned, concerned, convicted, somebody who's ready for repentance and saving faith, I pray that the Lord would put that face there and cause you to be intentional about your interactions with them, helping them move from moment to moment. Now, Lord, we, we thank you for this time we've had. We thank you for these people in this room. I believe it's a divine appointment. There's somebody here who needed this model. They're like, I want to share. I don't know how to share. There's an evangelism class for you that's going to start. But this is also a nice way to begin before that class even starts. Think about who people you love and care about and know, or maybe people you bump into. What step are they on? What can we do for Joe? Help him understand where he is. Help him understand who he is. Help him understand what's gone wrong in the world in his own life. And help him understand what the answer truly is for the world in his own life. How can you and I help Joe? Engage him orient him, point him towards God, and help him get to the next step. There is no plan B. There's no plan B. It's all up to you and I in partnership with the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for these people. Thank you for the opportunity and potential this day holds to help someone move to the next step. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.